Today on The Black Goat, we're going to talk about how you handle rejection as an academic. And we're going to do two letters again this week, one about how do you recruit diverse graduate students into your lab, and another about whether you should collaborate with someone with a toxic reputation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. So I, I wanted to uh, start off, we, uh, last week, or last two weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, we, uh, we, we were talking about being an open science person on the job market. <laughs> and at the end of the episode, uh, I, I made a joke. Uh, it was like most of my jokes, it was only mostly a joke. Uh, <laughs> I have this bad habit of <laughs> saying slightly serious things as jokes. But I, I, I sort of, I was trying to be funny. And uh, um, I said something about, uh, don't be a dick about open science. And then we just ended. Um, and <clears throat> I wanted to follow up on that just because uh, um, we got a really, I thought, really thoughtful and interesting response from somebody and had a nice conversation about it. But, uh, um, you know, during so the, the kind of the lead up to it, right, was that uh, I, I had said, like, one way to sort of talk about your open science practices is to use lots of I statements to say, like, this is what I do because it's good for my research. And, you know, I, and, and that's a way of not making people feel defensive. And Samin brought up, like, well, what if you think everyone should be doing this stuff? And we kind of said, like, there's a really good way to do that, which is to talk about, like, you have this vision for making science better and this is where you want to bring people and, and et cetera. Um, and then I said, but if you're, you know, uh, I don't, I think I used the word finger wagging, but kind of, you know, the, at least my intent was like, if you're disrespectful or if you're a jerk about it, people, you know, that's going to be a problem. And I said, don't be a dick about open science. Um, and so someone, you know, brought up like, what exactly is an open science dick? Uh, <laughs> and I think it's a good question. Um, uh, you know, from from my perspective, yeah, it's like being disrespectful about things, being, you know, we had an episode about, like, when are ad hominems okay, and that's a complicated topic, but, like, gratuitous ad hominems, ones that are more than you need to be doing, you know, people that do stuff like that. And to me, it's it's a sort of a special case, like, don't be a dick about open science is just a special case of don't be a dick uh, about anything, and there are, I don't think there are, like, I don't think the base rate is any higher than people being dicks about other things in the world. Um, and so I think it sort of came off as like kind of undercutting some of the other points we had made. And so even though it was me trying yeah. to be funny, I'd sort of a little bit regretted uh, trying to make a joke about that. I think it's complicated because people get called dicks who don't deserve it. But yeah. then and I think one thing we talked about that probably we didn't emphasize enough is I think for me, what's really off putting and what I find other people being put off by is when you aren't listening and you don't try to perspective take and understand why people don't agree with you. So I think it's fine to be convinced that you've found something that everybody should agree with and try to convince people. But I think not being curious about why people are resistant to it or why they have a different point of view. And even if for purely selfish reasons of being better at convincing them, you should be curious about where they're coming from and what their arguments are. So I think it's something like empathy, but even if you don't have the empathy part of it, at least like perspective taking and being curious and listening is important. Yeah. I think that one of the things that people mean when they say like an open science dick is they mean oh, when people, do people are actually being... say that now should <laughs> 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 i start a thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um i think that they mean that people are being like smug or self-righteous often um so i was at a lab meeting recently and one of my graduate students is interested in perceptions of atheists and so we were trying to get a sense of um, the things that people think about atheists and the things that they don't like about atheists. Um, and one of the first things that like the other people in my lab mentioned was this feeling that like, um, sometimes atheists can seem unlikable or be unlikable because they act really like smug and self-righteous. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like, a a reputation that can harm open science people, um, if we're not sort of careful about it, um, which is, I think, really consistent with what Samina is saying, like, don't, don't act like you know better than everyone or that, you know, like you're superior to other people. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a hard line to walk when you do think that, like, people should 
uh, change the way they do things. Yeah, I think I think the reason I I regret it, I a little bit regret the joke, is that we we had just spent a whole episode counseling people or not counseling whatever uh, talking about like presenting yourself when you do these things. And a lot of, I think a lot of the theme of what we were talking about was like, people are sort of overly eager to view you negatively because you just care about doing science well. So I agree, like, don't, don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk about anything in life. And there's ways to be jerks about everything. Um, but there, because there's this kind of stereotype or perception out there, I think it's especially a concern for people who are sort of innocuously just trying to make the field better, um, so, yeah, so so uh, do we want to talk a little bit about SIPs? Samin, did you want to talk about SIPs? Yeah, I just wanted, you know, I, I think that the audience for this podcast might overlap quite a bit with people who would be interested in attending uh, well, let's SIPs. Well, let's just set that up maybe just for the people that don't. So SIPs yeah. is the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. It's a new organization. Samin is the found, one of the founders and the president right now, and I'm on the board. Alexa was on the uh, sort of transition creation board, right? So that's what that is. And it's a group for people that are interested in making psychology practices better. So, yeah. Yeah. Including everything from like practices within a lab to like incentive structures, like hiring committees and, um, how journals work, how societies work. So, and, and many, many people involved are pretty early career. So like at the last conference, it was about half grad students and early like postdoc early faculty and half like more mid-career and few later career people so it's definitely not you don't have to have any credentials to be involved or to come there's a lot of people with a huge range of different experiences and perspectives and we really want all of those perspectives represented so we're really really eager to have people who haven't been super involved in these things in the past but are interested and curious. It's also a very hands-on meeting. So it's not just sitting and listening to talks. It's like working in groups together and your role can be as big or as small as you want it to be. If you want to mostly be a wallflower and occasionally chime in, that's cool. If you want to you know, start a new group, you have an idea about a project you think would be um, useful, then you can start a new group at the conference. We had several projects come out, start at the conference. So study swap is one thing that started at the conference last year and now is a real thing. SciArchive, the preprint server also. Uh, there's a group of authors that wrote a paper that recently got accepted on um, constraints on generalizability. So uh, suggesting that authors should include in their discussion section a statement of w under what context they do and don't expect their effect to generalize. That came out of SIPs. So a lot of great things ranging from, I think, Sandra, you were involved with like writing language for job ads. Yep which we um, used in our department, which had a real effect, which we talked about last episode. Yeah, I, one of the things that was kind of cool about the first conference was, like, you sort of put out this announcement, we're going to have a conference. You didn't say what was going to be going on, what was going to be happening. And so a bunch of people signed up to go who they, they thought, I think, that it was just going to be like, I'm going to sit in the audience and learn some stuff. Um, and they're, they're the sort of people that if you told them, like, you you're going to have to you know actually do stuff and and like you're going to be part of generating ideas their imposter syndrome would have kicked in and they would have said oh i have nothing to say i'm not part of these issues or you know whatever and they wouldn't have come but then it turned into a hackathon and it was so much better for having people who you know yeah. are are sort of interested but don't view themselves as experts i think that that you know and and i i hope that gets replicated this year i hope there is you know, the the goal is to, like, improve practices and methods in psychology, and we need all kinds of diversity. We need, you know, uh, including the, you know, the sort of headline kinds of diversity, right? We need people who do all kinds of research with all kinds of populations, people who have all different kinds of identities, different kinds of concerns, so that the conference produces the best possible kinds of initiatives and ideas and you don't have to know anything you just have to care so I, yep. I hope there's lots of early career people I hope there's lots of people who don't feel like they've been plugged in who want to come to SIPS yeah, so we should, do you want to say what <laughs> like, yeah so the conference is um, July 30th to August 1st in Charlottesville uh, Virginia, so at the Center for Open Science. And you can sign up for the conference by going to our website, improvingpsych.org. And uh, you'll fill out like a short thing to say to show your interest in registering. And then you'll hear from probably Katie Corker, who will like give you more details about 
the hotel and all that stuff. So it's it, the early registration deadline passed, but I think it's still pretty cheap, cheaper than most conferences um, to go. And so I really hope we really want to make that not a barrier to attending. Um, so we try to keep costs low. And yeah, it would be awesome to have lots of people there, lots of grad students, early career people, you know, anybody who's interested. And another thing, I mean, honestly, one of my main reasons for wanting to start this is just to have a place where people can get together in person to talk and work on these things, because I love Twitter. I love interacting with these people, but it's kind of cool to meet the people that, you know, you're interacting with so much online in person and to have a chance to work together. Um, you know, other conferences like this might be one of the themes of the conference, but it's a lot of discussion and not a lot of action. And so the point of this is like, let's get everyone who wants to, you know, make progress to like actually take action or is interested in helping somehow together and working together. And a lot of stuff can exciting things can happen, I think, when that happens. <laughs> cool. Cool. So we uh, um, we decided to do two letters this week and uh, um yeah, I think the letters are a lot of fun. We're still getting some super interesting letters, so so yeah. keep them coming in. Uh, should we should we do our first letter? Yes, yeah. let's. All right, so here's our first letter. Dear the Black Goat, I'm a new assistant professor, and recently I was trying to decide how to select graduate students. I ended up taking up some advice from my senior colleagues who emphasized the right research practices, high grades, and aptitude test scores, along with demonstrated writing ability. With those criteria, I ended up with an incredibly stellar prospective graduate student. It was only later that I realized that he or she was the child of two prominent social, sci social scientists. Despite my own personal goals for increasing diversity in our graduate program, here I was unknowingly participating in educational inequalities. How should I have proceeded differently? And what steps do you take to bring in graduate students in ways that increase diversity despite a system that does not share opportunities for demonstrating aptitude equally across groups? Sincerely, Anonymous. Just one quick clarification. So they said they take advice from their senior colleagues who emphasize the right research experiences, not practices, because I think it would be really weird if the senior colleagues were emphasizing research practices. Not that that doesn't happen. But, um, yeah, I think they mean like having had research experience in the lab or that kind of thing. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. I don't think that I know what the answer to that question is. Um, in, in this case, it sounds like it's like a pretty, it's probably a situation that, well, a, a situation that's this obvious probably happens rarely where you unintentionally like select someone who has had all of these advantages, but uh, surely subtler versions of this happen all the time. Um, when we make selections based on, um, yeah, qualities that be, people don't have equal opportunities to develop. Um, I don't know. I mean, I yeah. don't know the answer to this question. So, I mean, most programs and ours does have like a personal statement where it's more about your background. And I think that is something I look at pretty closely because it tells me a little bit about how many opportunities the person had. And so I can compare their accomplishments to, okay, but this, this was their environment educationally and otherwise. Um, and so comparing, you know, the, the things that they accomplished in the context of the opportunities and privileges that they had. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that statement can be really useful, but of course, sometimes you can't tell much from, from those statements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I got to the university of Oregon, the, the way admissions worked here and it's evolved a little bit, but it was, um, uh, it was a system that had, I think been put in place by Robin Dawes when he was department head here. And it's the, the idea was there was sort of an initial triage step, that was based on test scores and grades. It was like a linear combination of those. And then after that, every file gets read by person. Uh, but really importantly, that initial, so there, there was kind of like your, your GREs plus GPA, some weighted function of that has to be above some, some threshold. Um, but there were certain groups of people that automatically got their file read no matter what. Um, and, and they were, uh, um, so, you know, people from, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, um, people with disabilities, people, veterans, uh, people with master's degrees. There were a few different categories, mostly oriented towards diversity. And, and you know, I think there's this idea sometimes that, like, looking at grades or GREs is sort of antithetical to diversity. Um, and I, I don't think those things have to be in opposition. Dawes's position was, 
he's like, look, these things, he, and he did research on this. He was like, these things do predict outcomes later on. Um, but, you know, I'm not convinced that they're as good predictors in some other groups or that there are other things that, that sort of we wouldn't have data on, but, you know, for some people, but we would for others. And so they're relevant predictors for others. And so, like, we're going to have a flexible system and we're going to make sure a human being reads every one of these files to, to make sure looking for the kinds of things you're talking about, Sabine, right? And so I thought that was a really interesting system and, and we've evolved, but I've tried to take that kind of spirit and say like, are there, are there sort of things that I can look for um, that are, are sort of, yeah, that are going to sort of speak to a larger story? Um, I think, you know, research experience is a really tough one, right? Because on, on the one hand, the, the sort of there's a, a very kind of strong consensus in like personality personnel psychology that if you want to predict how someone's going to do in a job if you have a sample of them doing the same job in the past that's like a pretty good predictor right um and and i think that's one thing like if you want to know is someone going to do well in graduate school as a researcher and and maybe do well in a career as a researcher well if they've done research if they've had an opportunity to do research before you can see that um, but research experience is very much subject to structural inequalities, right? A lot of, like, a lot of people volunteer work in labs for no pay and no credit over summers. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that is, I think, you know, highly unequal. And in, in in business, you're not allowed, or legally, you're not allowed to do that. You are in nonprofits, but not in for-profit businesses, Um that's something the field, I think, hasn't really grappled with. We depend a lot on free labor, um, uh, you know, RAs and that kind of thing. And some of that's okay. They're, you know, if, if they're doing it for educational reasons and you're making sure they get education out of that. But, but definitely, like, there's more opportunities if you come from a privileged background. And so I think we have to be careful when someone doesn't have research experience. Like you said, is that a function of, you know, something about, kind of their interests or aptitude, or is that a function of the opportunities that have been available to them? Yeah, I mean, I think I take a, I, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I try to really emphasize both the objective, like indicators like GREs and so on. I think I probably weight those more than a lot of my colleagues do. Um, but I also, I think I'm much more impressed by if two people have the similar, you know, records by the one who had more disadvantages or had less of a leg up for, from structural things. Um, and despite, I don't know, so I've only had, you know, I'm, I'm not old enough to have had a large sample of graduate students, but I've had, you know, six or seven. And despite my waiting GREs a lot, I would say that I've had a pretty diverse group and almost, you know, most of the dimensions that you talked about, including like parents who didn't go to college and uh, even diversity in political views, diversity in eth- ethnic and racial identity and other things. So I think it is possible to care about both those things. I've also been lucky enough to be at institutions where we get excellent applicants and we have a decent chance of recruiting the people that we most want. So I think it's harder if you're not in that situation as an advisor. So if you um, have to compete, you know, if it, everybody has to compete with other universities, but if you're in a position where the, the package that you're offering is less good or the appeal of the location is less good, that kind of thing, then it might not be possible to prioritize both of those cons- types of considerations very highly. Yeah. I think that uh, that points to some interesting things that, you know, that you can do outside of the admissions process per se, right? So one is fighting in your department for better stipends for graduate students because yeah. people from disadvantaged backgrounds can't skate by on that thin financial margin as easily as someone who's like, well, you know, if if you know, if I have some unexpected expenses, my car breaks down, my parents will pay for it or whatever, right? right. I think also, you know, there's some interesting programs out there. And actually if if people I think it would be cool if people know of things, if there are things that people are doing that we're not talking about, it would be awesome if you email them to us and maybe we can read them on a future episode. Because I think that would be really cool. One thing I learned about recently that the University of Michigan does um, is that they they have a, f- a travel fund for recruitment and it's specifically for diversity recruitment and so the idea is that if if you you can go to this fund and you, and it's for graduate students in their department as well as faculty can do this and you can say hey I want to take a trip to this place it's serving this population it might be a minority serving institution or or something else. Um, and I just want to give a presentation about our department and what people are doing here. 
Um, and the, the department has a fund and they'll pay people or they'll pay people's expenses to go on these trips to sort of say like, hey, uh, you know, our university is interested in graduate students. Um, you should think about applying here. Here's the kinds of things that people are doing. And and the, the person that told me about this uh, um, said that it's it's been very successful for them, that, like, it's it's just a way of sort of, like, communicating to people, like, hey, we want you here. You should think about applying. And you'll here's a little bit of information about people here so you, like, have a, a little bit of a leg up in, in sort of knowing whether this would interest you and what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think some of the things we've been talking about have sort of implications for what um, people as faculty members can do to, I guess, like, address this early on or make this easier for people who are then recruiting graduate students. Um, so one of them is that, so Samin, you mentioned like reading a personal statement in order to get a sense of sort of how many opportunities people take advantage of. And that's something that also letter writers can communicate. Um, so I, I think that um, when people are writing their personal statements, they often feel pretty conflicted about how much they should mention any kind of disadvantage. Um, like I think they're worried about sounding like they're making excuses for themselves or things like that. Um, but I think that letter writers in a, are in a better position um, to vouch for um, for graduate applicants in that way. Um, and then another thing is, um, yeah, along the lines of what you're talking about, Sanjay, like ways to... Um, I guess, like, promote diversity in your labs early on so that those people end up having research experience when they start to apply for graduate school and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so if, if people if people listening have other things that, that they do or that they they've, they know work, that would be awesome. Letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, let us know. I would, I, would, I would love to know because I'd like to be better at this myself. I think, I mean, I think Alexa brings a really good point that we are the advisors to the undergrads who are applying to grad school too. So like one thing I do, my lab, we have a very, very broad range of research assistants and a very large number of research assistants. And so I know they don't feel that comfortable coming to my office hours or whatever. And I don't get to know all of them very well. And so we hold these like coffee hours, tea hours for them to drop in. And we talk mostly about applying to grad school. It's a chance for me and the grad students to get to know them better in a way that's less like they don't have to have the courage to come to my office hours and talk to me one-on-one and tell me their past experiences and so on. Right. So I think there's a lot we can do at that stage too. The the confidence that comes from privilege. Yeah. 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 And also the knowledge, right? Like the knowledge that you should do that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So should we do our second letter? Yeah. Yes. Let's do our second letter. Okay. Dear the black goat. I'm a junior researcher who has recently was recently advised to drop a collaboration I had been interested in for political reasons. The person I was planning on collaborating with has a toxic reputation on social media, including making comments I was not fully comfortable with. However, the research we were planning on doing together was a topic I am interested in and which I think is important. Do you think that collaborating with someone who people in your field generally consider a jerk, in quotation marks, would have a negative impact on your career? More generally, how much do you think who you collaborate with matters? Psychology feels very much like a team sport to me and not in a good way. And I wonder if you can consider collaboration in the sense of choosing your team. Most sincerely, Anonymous. This is really interesting to me. So for me, the line that stuck out is um, this, this person that the letter writer is considering collaborating with has made comments that the letter writer is not fully comfortable with. And so for me, that was like, okay, that's... I'm I'm super, super picky about who I collaborate with and not just on this dimension. There's other factors that are not about the other person. But um, I, I don't know. For me, that would be a deal breaker. Like if the person is has in more than one instance and it seems like a dispositional characteristic of theirs that they make comments in public that I'm not comfortable with, that would make me hesitate a lot about collaborating with them. The rest is a lot more complicated, though. Is your reasoning that them making comments that you're uncomfortable with might impact them them as a collaborator or is it that like in principle you wouldn't you don't want to be associated with somebody who makes comments you don't agree with i don't think it's exactly either of those things so i'm assuming by not fully comfortable with you mean i would i interpret that to mean that it it made them like made me like them less or respect them less and Mm -hmm. i feel like i just need to like and respect someone a lot to collaborate with them 
and that's, that's the minimum. And then a lot of other things need to be true too. Um, but a collaboration can be, I mean, not always, but it can be a very intimate long-term relationship. So I would, a, a starting point for me is like, I need to respect them a lot. And so if they're saying things that make me uncomfortable in public, you know, if they're making me uncomfortable because they're making me think hard and question my assumptions, that's great. But if they're making me uncomfortable because they're offensive, you know, if I think that they're, if I agree with their reputation that they're a jerk, uh, that would not be a basis for a good collaboration in my view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's uh, right there. So, I mean, one way of thinking of this is like, what does this say about the possible dynamics of the actual collaboration? And, and like you said, if they're saying things that make you uncomfortable in public, they're probably going to be saying things that make you (laughs) uncomfortable in private. And so that's going to become a thing you have to deal with in the context of the collaboration. Um, and, and yeah, I think that, that by itself is, if, if that's the case, if that's like part of the read on this person, then, then I think that's definitely at least a yellow flag, right? And certainly like there are times when you might collaborate with someone who you don't fully agree with. There's sort of the extreme version of that is an adversarial collaboration, but certainly like one of the things that can make collaborations interesting is finding that right amount of disagreement where like you have different perspectives and it makes the product better and it, you learn from it. This doesn't sound like an instance of that. I think there's also, I mean, I think the, the, so yeah, I, I mean, what, what if, what if we sort of take, okay, let's put a sort of set that part, the, the sort of like dynamics of the collaboration part, what about the reputational part? So, you know, one, one possibility, right, is that if this person, you know, is, this person might drag you into their conflict and some some people who are sort of involved in conflict that's kind of what they do right they're they're sort of you know uh um uh i i remember like early on uh uh, a colleague telling me about somebody else you know sort of trying to, to sort of advise me about dealing with someone else uh um who and they were they were saying uh look most people, when they see conflict, they back away. This is somebody who, when they see conflict, they get excited and charge into it. And there are some people that are like that. And and, and they're going to, if they view you as one of their own, they're going to want to drag you into that. Um, and so that's something I think, th- that's not even, we're not even into reputational yet, actually. That's still sort of substantive, but it's social substantive rather than kind of, or public substantive or whatever, right? But that that's something to think about. Like, is this someone who's going to drag you into their drama? Um yeah. I think that I want to make it clear to you that like the disagreeing on intellectual things is totally different. Yeah. I, I didn't mean yeah. that. And I actually think that could boost your reputation. If if you're seen to do adversarial collaborations, to collaborate with people who you substantively disagree with, I would think more highly of you. I'd be like, wow, that's impressive that you really do want to get at the truth of the matter in this question if you're willing to collaborate with people who you disagree with. So, yeah, I think it's more like what's the what are the consequences uh, re- reputational and otherwise of collaborating with someone who people dislike. And let's assume that that dislike is not completely baseless, like that they've right. done things in public that are, that a reasonable person could find offensive or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I think the, the fact that the, the fact that the letter writer said they themselves have felt uncomfortable. Yeah. is sort mm-hmm. of consistent with that. Yeah. So what, right. So, I mean, I think there is, uh, there is a reputational effect that if people see your name on a byline with somebody um, and and it's not it doesn't have those markers of like an adversarial collaboration or anything else just like in the normal case um, then they kind of they they kind of view you as potentially as like you're on team so and so and and so I think that is part of part of what's gonna happen and it kind of, I mean, in some ways it kind of sucks, right? Because it sounds like, obviously, this person who's writing the letter, there's, they have reasons that they do want to do this collaboration. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be writing us a letter about it. They wouldn't be conflicted, right? Like, they think that there's, they could actually do something interesting and worthwhile with this collaboration. So there's a cost-benefit mm-hmm. analysis. And, and it, it kind of sucks when the cost-benefit analysis is like, I think doing this collaboration would create something that's good for science, but my own personal reputation is is maybe going to be harmed by for the for these non-substantive reasons um and like how do you balance that out yeah i th- i think reading this question i mean i'm reminded of like 
a discrepancy between the way that I think about choosing collaborators now and the way that I thought about it when I was, I don't know, like junior researcher could mean a number of things, but let's say we're talking about somebody who's like a graduate student or a postdoc. Um, so when I was a graduate student, I was not at all picky about choosing collaborators. Like I was really flattered if anyone wanted to collaborate with me and I thought that I should take advantage of those opportunities. And I'm not sure if that was like, um, a little bit misguided or if that actually is sort of um, the way that you should approach um, collaborations when you're a graduate student. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like I think that now I can be more picky than I was then. And also then I didn't realize how important it was to choose your collaborators wisely. Um, but I do think that there's a difference in choosing collaborators when you're more junior versus more senior. Um, yeah, I can remember thinking, you know, that I should be, I should seize an opportunity to work with somebody, especially if they were, you know, an expert in a particular area or, you know, maybe they, it sounds like in this case, the person might have, um, I, I'm inferring a lot, but this person, the person who wrote the letter clearly thinks that they could benefit in some way with, from collaborating with this person. So this person might have a good reputation in a particular research field, but also a reputation as a jerk. And then how do you balance those reputational gains and losses, I guess? Yeah, I think it depends on a few things. And one is how much else you have going on. So I think if you have a lot of projects you're excited about already, then you can be more picky about other collaborations. Um, and the other is like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I agree that if you have a byline with somebody that people make strong assumptions, if it's yeah. just one, one paper, I think I if you're like, if you become regular collaborators, absolutely. Then that person's reputation starts affecting your reputation unless people know that you're different, which is hard. If you're a junior person, people don't know much about you. But if it's one paper and then that's the end of the collaboration, I'm, I don't think that would really be bleed into it too much unless there's other reasons for people to think that you have some of the jerky qualities of your collaborator. So if you're the kind of person who might sometimes say things that are borderline jerky, then I would be more careful about collaborating. Oh, uh, we're, we're back into that concerned. again, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So bottom line, don't be a jerk. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I think the, I mean, right. Like if I'm, if I'm on a hiring committee and I'm flipping through someone's Vita and I see a name on a publication and it's somebody I have preconceptions about, that's probably not going to have a big effect. On the other hand, if it's like, you and one other person and the paper is getting talked about for making a controversial point and everything then, or even a non-controversial point, but it just becomes high visibility. It's just you and that other person that I think in that conversational setting, yeah, it, it is, there is going to be some transfer. So I think it's, yeah. I, I think it's kind of both. I think like, yeah, I wouldn't say like in a completely minimal case, just the fact that you are on a byline with a person there's not a lot, but there, there are a lot of instances where it can, you know, it, it can start to transfer. I mean, I think for the, you know, I don't know, I don't know, like, I don't know that I can come to a yes or no answer on this, but I think the question of like, is there a chance that, or is, is are there times when this other person's reputation is going to transfer to you? And, you know, like the letter writer said, psychology feels like a team sport, not always in a good way. I, I do think that there's, there are ways that this can be viewed as like, yeah, you're on team so-and-so. Um, and that just has to be part of the calculation along with these right. other things. Like, are you going to do something worthwhile? Are you going to learn something, et cetera? I just want to point out, since we talked about a, an issue that I think connects to this last week. So we talked about like serial sexual harassers and whether their reputations should affect how we treat them. So like plenty of people collaborate and co-author with known sexual harassers and we don't hold them accountable for those people's jerky behavior well, more not, than jerky right it's because we're not holding so, the sexual harassers themselves yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah no i'm serious so like, i just yeah. think it's interesting that we have this yeah. double standard that like it's totally fine to collaborate with someone who sexually harasses people at conferences yeah. but someone who's a jerk on, on twitter no like don't collaborate <laughs> with them right yeah. like that just sounds I, I don't know when i thought about that comparison i was like wait like I don't know. Yeah. That bugs me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we, right. This is like the letter from last time. Like we, we don't have good mechanisms for dealing with not, not only do we not have good mechanisms, we don't have any even discussion around, like there's not even reputational consequences for some kinds of bad behavior, like sexual harassment. And there are for things some, sometimes, you know, that don't deserve them. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I just raised a whole can of worms that we can't possibly <laughs> answer and address, so I apologize for that. 
But I think it's interesting that, that we are so sensitive to this issue, right? Like if someone's a known right. jerk or considered to be a jerk, like it's so right. sensitive how much you can associate with them, how much you can be seen with them at conferences, how much you can collaborate with them and be have your name on a paper with them and so on. When like probably the behavior that got them called a jerk might not be as bad as many other behaviors that we don't right. pay attention to or yeah. consider in these situations. Yeah. Yeah, although again, in this in this case, the letter writer themselves is uncomfortable. So I, I right. think that uh, you know, I would take that for this specific case, I would take that seriously. Although you're you're, yeah. you're right in the, so I don't know that I have a take home for this other than say like, yeah, I mean there are, there are some ways to to be on a paper with someone that don't transfer, and some ways that do. And if you're at a career stage, I mean, our reputations always matter, but if you're at a career stage where that's like very high stakes for you. I it kind of sucks. I don't. I I wish it weren't the case. Like I wish we could just like do intellectual work and sort of in some ways like say like this isn't saying I'm endorsing what this person did or whatever, um, but it's it's going to kind of be part of the mix. I don't I don't know that there's any way uh, around that. There might be a way where like when they say things in public that make you kind of uncomfortable, you can try to call them out. And if you're doing that and collaborating with them. If you feel comfortable, which obviously for a junior person is going to be very hard to do. But then I think that people would admire your ability to still collaborate with somebody. And despite the fact that your collaborators still call yeah. them out or like say when they do something that you think is my, crossing the line. My my experience is that calling out gets people don't see yeah. that. I've had that. Yeah. I've had so many people in the context of like discussions about replicability be like, why haven't you called out so and so? It's like, I have. I have right. in public, I have in private. They yeah. keep saying I've stopped because they're not listening to me. And I, you know, uh, um, but like I could show you instances, you know, why does it matter? Like you're putting, and this is the whole like team sport kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. you've put me in a category with this person, which I didn't ask you to do. And mm-hmm. uh, and now you're you're saying like, why aren't you calling this person out? And it's like, why aren't you fucking calling out? Anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. I, <laughs> well, I mean, they I have, have issues the courage to call you out for not calling people out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And why are you calling me out? For, why do I call yeah, right. you? Know, yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah, true. It's not like you can put on your CV. Like, by the way, I, re- <laughs> I replied to this person's tweet and said that it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, oh, it's so yeah. complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry, letter writer. We don't have. Uh, I, hopefully, we hopefully we've given at least some things to to put into the consideration. I don't think we have an answer. I wish we did. Uh, maybe. Do you guys have an answer? No, I don't know. I think. Yeah, I think the answer. There is no simple answer, and I think that hopefully that's a useful <laughs> useful feedback that you're not missing anything. It's a really tricky situation. It depends. Yeah. The universal answer in second. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, sh- should we move on to our, our main topic of the day? Yeah. yeah. Let's All right. It. Let's talk about rejection. So yeah, we, rejection is, it's such a big part of being an academic, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's a part of a lot of things. It's a part of a lot of fields, but it's definitely a big part of being an academic. Um, it's something that seems like it changes over the course of a career in different ways. Uh, yeah, we thought it would be fun to kind of start. Fun. <laughs> we thought it would be painful uh, <laughs> uh, to start by talking about, like maybe each of us give an example of a rejection that we faced. Uh, um, maybe maybe an especially difficult one, or maybe an especially typical one. You know, uh, um, a not extreme one. Might you know what's what's a normal rejection look like? Could be interesting too. So, who wants right. to start with a rejection, Alexa? Tell us about being I can rejected. start because yeah, I have an example of something that is was difficult for me and is typical and that <laughs> happens often. <laughs> so, um, so I thought of like uh, the first time I submitted a grant. So I submitted a grant to NSF, um, and I think that I was like relatively informed about the very like small chance that I would you know get this grant. So I think that I had very very low expectations. Um, but anyways, like when that. Um, when that grant got rejected, uh, a couple of things surprised me. So one was that like, it hurt more than I thought it would. Um, you know, you put like so much time and effort into these like grant applications and, you know, at the time I really had, I mean, still, I had no idea really what I was doing, but I really liked the process and I like thought that it was a good idea and I felt excited about it. And I think even knowing that the odds of me getting it were extremely low, it was still like, 
really disappointing to hear that somebody was like, you know, there's no way we're giving you money for this, basically. Like, there's, like, a lot of people we're going to give money to before we would give money to you. Um, so, yeah, that that experience um, was was tough, even though, yeah, I know that it's very typical and it's been typical for me too. Like I've been rejected for grants many times since then. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess like I feel motivated to make this into some kind of like growing or learning experience or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, but like there's a way in which just that experience just sucks, you know? And, you know, for a week you're just like, oh, shit like I I didn't do as good of a job with that as I thought I did or like people didn't like it um then also I think that um I've had more exposure to like seeing a little bit more uh exposure to seeing other people's grants since then and um learning what kinds of things get funded and things like that and that was good for me to hear like I I do look back on that first grant that I submitted and think that it kind of sucked um And so that's kind of a nice feeling, you know, like it's great to look back on something that you did a few years ago and think um, that it it was fantastic and you did a really good job. Um, But there's also something nice about looking back and thinking that, you know, you really sucked five years ago because maybe that means that you've gotten a little bit better or something. When that happened to you, Alexa, so there's, you know, there's all these things that people say about rejection is normal and pay lines are ridiculous and there's so much noise. There's like all these conventional wisdom things that people say to try to make rejection feel better. And you must have heard those prior to having done this. Like, did, did you, did telling yourself that stuff help or were you just like, Oh, that's such bullshit. <laughs> like, like how did, how did you try to sort of like reconcile what you were feeling with like all this sort of talk out there about, you know, trying to normalize rejection? Well, I think, I mean, so maybe, I think that if maybe I just got the feedback, like your grant didn't get funded or whatever, that would be one thing. And I would be able to say, yeah, base rates, you know, like I understand. Um, but you also get feedback, right? And people tell you <laughs> specifically what is bad. Here's why grant. in great detail, yeah. <laughs> you specifically suck. I think, yeah. And I think grants are the worst because like, if you get a paper rejected, it's like your sample size wasn't big enough or your sample wasn't representative or you didn't use behavioral measures. Like, yep, cool. I didn't do that. Maybe I couldn't, maybe whatever. But a grant is like your ideas are bad and it almost feels like you should be ashamed. Like really, like this is what your brain produced. I mean, you had no constraints. It just gets your brain. If if your data sucks or doesn't tell a good story or is confusing, like at least you were like just following the scientific method. But like this is like you have no constraints. Like this is, you pull this idea out of thing. This was just your head. (laughs) Your head sucks. Yeah. And for me also, my first grant rejection and then my second, third and fourth were really, really hard. Like, because yeah, I, fe- I felt ashamed. I think I don't feel ashamed when I get a paper rejected, but I think getting a grant proposal rejected, especially when it's like not even close, right? You're like, oh, yeah. like you thought this was a terrible idea. And that's so much worse than you thought that the results weren't that good. Or you thought the method could have been better. Yeah, of course the method could have been better, et cetera. But yeah, I think I was lucky with grants and that the first the first few grants that I was on I was a co-PI and uh um my my collaborator uh had had lots of experience and so I think that helped buffer it and then when I started submitting grants as a PI I had a they were collaborative with a co-PI from another discipline and the we sort of knew we were still figuring things out as we went. And so I myself had doubts about my ideas and, and his attitude was really like, we just need to start submitting this stuff. Uh, like, and we're going to, we're going to figure it out through the process of writing the grants. And so I didn't, I didn't have that. I think if I had jumped in as a sole PI with my own ideas, I think it would have felt very different. I think like, getting you know in the first instance like having a collaborator who had been through it really helped and then later on like myself having doubts about the ideas and viewing it as like the, this process is part of us working it out um but that made it unusual for me but i like if you can find a way to have that mindset i think it's helpful but i i you know obviously like I mean, I avoided submitting grants for as long as I could. I'm in a department, like some departments, they tell you, you're not going to get tenure unless you have a grant, and then you have to start right away. My department wasn't like that, and so I put it off, I put it off. I sort of like 
you know, strung out my startup money. It was a combination of we didn't have that rule and we didn't have a timeline on our startup. And so I was just like kind of doling it out in little pieces until I was finally like, okay, shit, I'm not going to be able to keep the lights on if, you know, uh, um, if I don't do something. Um, so I, I was, I, yeah, I think I got really lucky in that way. Well, when you asked Sanjay, like, you know, what I told myself when I got the feedback, I think another um, reaction that I had was that, you know, there's a lot of ways that we have of lessening the effect of rejection, you know, like we're, we have these like strategies of thinking, okay, well, this happens to everyone and blah, blah, blah. And this is particularly easy when it comes to grant rejections. Um, but something that I hope we talk about a little bit, like when we're talking about rejection is like rejection, rejection sensitivity. Um, and I, like, I know some people who are too rejection insensitive, like someone will tell them that something is terrible and they won't get it. Like they will be like, we'll be like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll improve from here. Or like, you know, and it's I'm like, no, stop trying. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah. uh, I'm a little worried that you're is... talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> it is fundamentally it's like flawed. Some people think they're great. No, matter. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's that <laughs> over uh, and once over again, the confidence that comes from privilege, right there. There's <laughs> like a lot of like middle-class white dudes out there who just believe in themselves way too much. Um, and other folks do, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I, I have a sort of an example of rejection that was kind of an interesting thing because so okay so when I when I was on the job market so this is, I'm going to talk about job rejection um, when I was on the job market so I, I trained as a personality psychologist um, and I was advised but but my my work my interests are. Their personality, their social, their developmental, they're sort of across different different subfields, right? They're, and I, I was I was advised to downplay being a personality psychologist. And of the different disciplines that I've got a leg in, in terms of like my identity, it's you know personality psychology is a, has been an important influence in how I think. It's it's like it matters to me. But I was told, look, you know, people just have these kind of unfounded negative views of what they think personality psychology is. And, and I knew that, like, I remember in graduate school, just once randomly, this is when I was getting ready for my prelims. And I was like, interested in how other departments did prelims. And I was googling and I found there was one department that does a comprehensive exam. And they had their reading list online. And I was looking at it. And they had a, a week on of the or like one section on personality psychology, and every single article on personality psychology was written by Walter Michelle. And I was, you know, I, I was like, you're not even bothering to read a different point of view on personality, right? And so so anyway, so I, I was sort of very aware that there are these there's this polarization, this sort of history behind it. Um, and yet I view myself as doing personality psychology in a way that doesn't fit that view that people have of it. And I was told to kind of downplay this in my applications. Um, and I had a, a, a friend who had been on the job market a couple of years before who'd gotten the same advice, done the same thing. And his experience had been he would go place and they'd be like, yeah, no, we know you're a personality psychologist. We wanted you anyway. And so I, I sort of felt a little bit emboldened by that. Like, OK, times are changing. People are sort of open minded. Um, but I actually had a couple experiences on the on the job market. I mean, obviously, like there are plenty of places, I'm sure, that just passed on me because they're like, nope, don't want one of those. Um, but I had a couple experiences interviewing at places where within the department themselves, they, there was like polarization about how they viewed personality psychology. Like some people were obviously enough people on the search committee were open minded enough uh, or just interested in my work um, that that, you know, I got invited. But then there'd be like one or two or however many number of people who are just like, nope like all of personality psychology is fundamentally flawed. And it was usually based on the fact that they had had the equivalent of that reading list, right? Like they hadn't read anything in personality psychology since 1972. And they just had this like completely dated view of it. Um, I actually, and I also talked to a grants program officer once who was like, I don't want any personality psychology submissions for the same fucking reason. Um, but so, so, you know, and I didn't, I didn't get those job offers from those kind of places. Um, and I think what what hurt about that was like it was based on 
something that felt like part of my professional identity and it was based on a misperception of my professional identity. Like, and, and you would see all the, like, you know, the stereotyping effects, the refencing, like he's a personality psychologist, but he's a Michelian. I got that once. Like he's a Michelian person, like making excuses for me or something. And, or, and I, you know, I had people challenge me over dinner, like, do you consider yourself one of those personality people? Like, how do you identify yourself? And I'd say, like, well, yeah, that's, like, my research community, but also, like, my work is my work. This is what I do, and this is how I think of it. Like, can you just look at my work and decide if you think it's good or not? Um, I didn't get that job either. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was, like, this weird experience where, where like, I think being, being rejected for something that felt, like, fundamental to what I do. So it's not, like... It's not like a paper where it's like I can have some better papers and some shittier papers and I'll get over the shittier papers. Um, or even even with a grant, like it's harder because it's your ideas, but it's like, well, I know I sometimes have better ideas and sometimes I have worse ideas. It was like fundamentally what you do, because we don't understand it and we have these negative opinions of what we misunderstand about it, um, we're, we're just not going to be interested in you. That was tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty deep, a deep cut to <laughs> say like your central identity is something I don't respect. Or Fortunately, respect. I ended up in a department that is so supportive um, and like I'm super happy. So I can look back on that now and feel okay about it and be like, fuck them. I wouldn't have wanted to be there, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Um, uh, you know, but but also yeah. like, there, there, I have to say at every one of those places, there were really nice thoughtful people who cared about my work. That was why I had those experiences was because they invited me out in the first place. So I don't want to be like disparaging in a broad sense. There were just like enough people to kind of like make waves. And and also like, I don't know that that's why I got rejected, right? People just might have Mm -hmm. not been impressed by my work enough, which is normally how you reject on jobs. It was just like sort of planting those seeds, like this is part of it, you know, made made it tougher than it maybe otherwise would have been. Yeah. I feel like the job rejection, like it's pretty, what, there's ways to reframe it that aren't available for like papers or other things where it's like you dodged a bullet. Like if they didn't want me, then I don't want them anyway. Or right. like it wouldn't be a good fit or that kind of thing. Or like, well, if psych science doesn't want me, then I don't want them anyway. It doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I'll keep my story of rejection short so that we have some time to talk about um, like how thing, how our reactions have changed over time. Cause I think that's a really interesting topic too. And we don't have a lot of time left, but I was thinking, I was trying to think about like the rejections that hurt the most. And I, certainly the grant ones hurt um, and paper ones sometimes hurt, but usually I agree with the paper ones. <laughs> um, uh, but so I think the things that if I'm, I can't remember specific instance, but if I try to remember like when I felt like the sting of rejection, it was more, and actually this gets back to the letter writer about psychology being a team sport. It was like when I wasn't chosen for the dodgeball team. So like early on in grad school or like early assistant professor, like being at a conference and walking by the like conference restaurant and seeing that a bunch of people I respected and admire were having dinner and I wasn't invited, (laughs) (laughs) that kind of thing. I think like the rejections that I cared the most about were like when I I wanted to be a part of something I wanted, you know, I had an identity and then times when I felt like that identity wasn't necessarily welcoming or whatever. And I don't think it was ever like intentional or anything like that. And I think, I think it's a common experience, but just wanting to be part of the group, wanting to be part of that team and having to earn your spot on the team and it taking time and sometimes people not recognizing your contributions or that you will even want to be a part of it. I think that kind of, rejection to me is, is harder. I think that, you know, when I know that it's coming from people whose respect I really crave. Right. And the thing about like many other kinds of rejections, like anonymous peer reviewers or grant reviewers is that you don't know who they are. And it's easy enough to tell yourself like, well, they're probably people who yet don't like personality psychology. So I never had a chance or there are people who, you know, I don't share their values. So I don't need them to like my work. But when it's the people that, you know, you want to, you want to earn their respect, then it's the hardest, I think. And some of that is just, it takes time, right? Like people don't give grad students the time of day. And now like being on the other side of that, I feel terrible when like grad students come to me at conferences and I, I want to give them a chance. I want to find out like, would I be interested in talking to them? Do we have stuff in common? But I don't always have time or energy or whatever. 
And I remember what it feels like to be like, no, I think that if you gave me a chance, we would like have a great conversation, <laughs> but you don't know who I am and you have no reason to give me a chance. And I, I mean, one thing I've learned is that I, at least in personality psych, which is a much smaller field than social psych, I do think time does a lot. Like I think eventually people, they will read your stuff. They will like, you will earn a reputation for your work with time. But I remember like the early years just feeling pretty impatient and feeling like I just wish I could have a voice and be a part of the conversation. And that I, I didn't know how to do that, how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that brings up an interesting question about like, yeah, change over time. And, and we wanted to talk about that. I, I think it's, it's tough to sort of separate, like in our personal trajectories, we can talk about how we've changed, but it's, it's tough because there's a, definitely an element of survivorship bias. Like there are some people who are rejected who didn't, <laughs> who aren't around to be on our podcast and, you know, and that kind of thing. So I think, you know, I, yeah, I think that needs to be in the background, but you know, that being said, like, yeah, I, so so you know, there's this sort of obvious way in which uh, maybe it's not obvious, but uh, you know, which is sort of the experience of rejection over and over m- helps you build some kind of a little bit of a, a you know maybe you get more used to it. Um, I, I really like your point, Alexa, about like now being able to to look back and say like, oh yeah, you know, I can, I didn't you know I. I can sort of see why, like, I can see myself having grown since that rejection, and 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 maybe that becomes meta knowledge the next time you get rejected that you can imagine you'll have that experience too. I don't know. I, actually, that's a good question. Do you have that now? Like, so now you can look back on five years ago and say, like, oh, I've learned so much since I was rejected that time. Does that mean if you get a rejection tomorrow, are you going to be able to say to yourself, hey, I bet I'll look back on this in a few years and and feel like I've grown, or does that not? help. I think so. Yeah. I think that helps a lot. Um, because, so I think this relates back to the letter we read last podcast about like trying to seem smart and prove yourself versus sort of seeing yourself as like a work in progress. Um, and I think that, yeah, this, the ability to like look back and think that I was worse at things before does make me feel like, okay, well, if I am bad at something now, then there's time for me to get better at it, which is a comforting thought. Um, so, yeah, I do think that that kind of thing buffers against some of the negative feelings of being rejected. Um, over time, for me, I think that I've, in some ways, be- what what I would ideally like to do is become less sensitive to rejection in terms of feeling less negative affect about it, but not less sensitive in terms of taking criticism seriously. Um, I do think I am less, the first part is true and I hope it's not combined with like not taking criticism as seriously. Um, so I know people, for instance, who like, yeah, they'll respond to reviews of a paper, um, and they'll just dismiss all of the criticisms. Um, and I think that that is a nice feeling to think like anybody who has criticisms of your work doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and it is not nice to like have the feeling that every single criticism is super important and, you know, like cuts to your, like deep to your ability to be a researcher. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, It's interesting because I would have thought that reducing the negative affect around the rejection would actually make you less defensive and more open to learning something from the rejection. But I can see also that one way to reduce negative affect is to just have a wall up and just be like, I don't care. I don't care what anyone else thinks. So obviously that would not be conducive to learning from the feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting when those, those, I've had the experience in collaborations where those things play out in different people. And that always creates an interesting interpersonal dynamic where like, you know, one person in the group is saying, fuck it, these reviewers are morons, these things are horrible, and somebody else is like, I kind of think they had a point there, you know, and, and, and that's always, like, I think, uh, um, I think I'm, I'm not always, but, but at least sometimes more likely to be on the, like, I think they had a point side, and for me, that's always, like, I'm, when, I, when, like, the reviews first come in, 
And I look at it, I'm like, yeah, they kind of got us. And then somebody else is like, these fucking morons didn't even read our paper. I'm always like, okay, Sanjay, just wait a few days. Yeah. <laughs> if you like jump in right now, like, you know, yeah. people are like, this hurt, this stung. And mm-hmm. let somebody like, don't, don't try to be the smarmy, like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Like, let's, let's just, you know, talk about it in a few days. Yeah. I mean, my experience with papers is that the vast majority of the time, the reviewers are completely right. And it's like, I knew those things going in. Of course I knew my study wasn't perfect. And so, yeah, I have that feeling of like, yep, you're right. I thought maybe my paper was still above threshold despite those limitations. You thought you think it's below. That's cool. I didn't, you didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. Maybe I need to think more about what I can do to like address those limitations Mm -hmm. in my future work, but I knew they were there in this work. And I think maybe also being on the other side of it so much, so like being the one rejecting people, I know that when I write those letters, I'm not saying anything that authors usually don't already know, right? Like they know the, often they even mention those things in their limitation sections. And I'm not saying that I think it's bad. It's just like, it's at that point, it's a judgment call about like, you acknowledge these limitations. Do you think your paper is still worth publishing? I think maybe you should do a little bit more before you publish it or whatever, or frame it a different way. Um, But those, to me, those things like, I got, I get used to that kind of like now a paper rejection, pretty much. I don't feel anything. Cause I'm like, yep, you're right. Those are the limitations. I knew that going into it. Like maybe it shouldn't be in that journal then. I don't know. Like, yeah. Do you, and do you I find don't yourself I, having to pretend to care when it's like with a student or <laughs> I, I find myself having to apologize for forgetting that it feels different <laughs> to other people. And I think that it's not just time. I think being an editor has really like, I, I remember how it feels to think, oh, the reviewers don't respect me. The editor thinks I should like I should be embarrassed for submitting this paper. And that's the yeah. shame feeling, I think, is the part that's really, really hard. And I think that the reason I don't have it anymore is because I know that's not at all when I'm what I'm thinking when I'm right. a reviewer, editor and writing a critical yeah. review. So I think that's that's a big part of why. But, yeah, it's definitely true that I think it can make me insensitive to what my what my collaborators or students are going through. And I, I need to work on that. Um, yeah. because it's a totally human reaction. And I think I've just developed thick skin in this particular area through repeated mm-hmm. exposure to both sides. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, I mean, the, so I think it's important, like it's all when, as you get further along, it's always important to acknowledge that the stakes change, right? Like, you know, we're all at a point where like a rejection isn't going to make or break, you know, and, and a student who's on the job market, um, or about to be on the job market, right? Like that one paper can be a big deal. And I, I think that's probably the most important way in which the stakes change. One, one thing that I've kind of noticed over time that, that is less important, I think, in an objective sense. So I don't want to like try to push that first thing aside. But it is kind of interesting is like I've struggled over the course of my career to maintain a balance of caring and fuck it. And like, I think there are some ways earlier on that the fuck it was easier because I could tell myself, look, I'm going to try to do it the way I want to do it. um, But if this doesn't work out, I have other options in life. Um, and, and of course that's a bit of an illusion, <laughs> maybe yeah. less so now that it, like, it, it, like it was hard to get a job as a psychology PhD before, you know, anyway, but, but I would tell myself that at least, right. Like, and, and now I sort of feel like, oh, I'm like, I've, I've made this my life. Um, this is, you know, and, and so like how I, like, I can't tell myself, I mean, I guess I could, but I wouldn't believe it. Right. Like I can't tell myself like if, you know, if that next paper gets rejected, I'm just going to like go get another job. Um, uh, and so like, I'm kind of in it for the long haul. And so it's, it's subtler than the like make or break about the job market that you care about a lot. And I, I cared a lot. And so I was sort of doing some self-deception, but it, it's just because so it's not it hasn't become less or more it's just become different of that like on the one hand you have to care enough to do the work to try to do it well to to be personally invested in it and on the other hand there has to be some amount of like ability to detach yourself and kind of like you said Alexa in in a good way not in a bad way not detaching in a sense of you won't care about the criticisms but just detaching enough to sort of like not pin your life on it and how I do that has changed over the years. And I'm always kind of working on trying to like pin my fuck it on different things because the things that I used to be able to pin it on are no longer there. Right. Yeah. 
I think a big thing for me too is like realizing that the JPSP decision is not an objective evaluation of how smart I am or whatever. Editors make mistakes all the time. Grant panels make mistakes all the time. And so realizing that like, just because three journals didn't like your paper doesn't mean it's objectively bad. And that also means that if a journal does like your paper, that doesn't mean it's objectively good. And I think a way to take this thing out of projection. I never tell myself that. (laughs) But I think if you set yourself up, if you celebrate, like if you say, yes, like JPS, if you like my paper, it must be awesome. You're setting yourself up to feel really bad about yourself when JPSP doesn't. And so I think, and this is something I struggle with with my grad students. Like I used to really celebrate like getting a paper into JPSP or something like that. And now I've also like lost the personal feeling that that's like a huge accomplishment, but I also think it might not be a great message to send because I know how fallible the whole system is and that we just shouldn't treat it as this, as something with a really clear signal. It's just so, so much noise in both directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a, a colleague tell me early on, and I, I, I haven't always followed this, but I thought it was, I've tried to at least somewhat, and it's good advice, is to like celebrate submitting. Like mm-hmm. the, the part mm-hmm. that you had control over is you did the hard work. Mm-hmm. And like you should, when you put in a grant application, when you send a big important paper, like that, that is legitimately a moment to celebrate. Like you, you did yeah. a thing. You did a thing yeah. that was worthwhile. And now it's out of your hands. And, and yeah. like you don't tell yourself, like if it gets in, like you said, it's the be all end all. But like, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's, that's like the world may not view that as much of an accomplishment, but you know it is. And so, you know, with your yeah. collaborators, that, I think that can be a, a thing that you should try to let yourself feel good about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, should we end there? I, I yeah. guess so. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, yeah. So, so this has been the black goat podcast, uh, with Alexa Tullet, Samin Vizier and myself, Sanjay Srivastava. You can write to us over email, letters at the Black Goat Podcast. Uh, I just fucked that up. <laughs> letters at the Black Goat Podcast.com. Our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at Black Goat Pod. We're on Facebook if you just look for our name. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>